0: podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 1015 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd be really glad if you would open those with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8 is where we're going to be today. And I'll begin reading in verse four, uh, picking up where we left off last week. So you might recall that last week we were in Acts chapter eight, uh, uh, looking at verses one to four, where there was this uh, increase, uh, this uh, great persecution that that was unleashed on the church there in Jerusalem. And uh, the Christians were scattered about uh, because of their scattering the gospel spread. And we're going to begin to look at that spread of the gospel here this morning In Acts chapter eight, Uh, it's very interesting to note how the the storyline of the book of Acts unfolds. Uh, I'll mention it again during today's sermon, but uh, the way that Luke intends for the book of Acts to be read, he gives us indication of that by the way he opens the book. He repeats essentially what is the commission that Jesus has given to his disciples that Matthew closed his gospel with. Luke records it. Uh, Jesus might have given this commission many times. Uh, It seems as though uh, that they were the same kind of information that was passed down from Jesus to his disciples. The commission was to make disciples by baptizing and teaching. That's the way Matthew records it, the language he uses. Uh, Luke says that they are to uh, that Christ said to his disciples that they are to be his witnesses. And he even lays out a sort of geographical expansion of their witnessing project which is how Luke organizes the storyline of the book of Acts. Interestingly, we're going to see that first expansion, that first concentric circular expansion from uh, Jerusalem uh, outward to that next people group, uh, to that next geographical location, that spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the spread essentially of Christ's kingdom in the world. Uh, The reason why the main point is behind me now is because I'll read it in a second, but you might not have time to write it down. So if you'd like to write that stuff down, feel free to begin doing that now. If you brought your own Bible with you, then you probably are already at Acts chapter 8. If you did not bring your own Bible with you, there might be, or there should be, a hardback black one like this in a seat back nearby. And you're going to be looking for page 862. And as I said, we'll be looking for Acts chapter 8, and I'll start reading in verse 4 in just a moment. First, would you mind standing with me as we read this primary passage? Standing up while we read this passage is one of the Ways that we show respect for God's word. So thanks for doing that with me this morning. Acts chapter eight, beginning with verse four. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. They all had paid attention to him For your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray that pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Thank you, God, for your word. You can all be seated. This is a fascinating and very interesting account, as I said, in the unfolding of the storyline of the book of Acts. In its context, uh, both in the book of Acts and in the broader uh, plan of God's redeeming work in the world, I think the main point that I'd like to uh, uh, hold up and put on display from this passage is that God expands Christ's kingdom in the world through the preaching of the gospel and through the conversion of sinners. But, as we see in this passage, there will be some who only appear converted for a time. God expands Christ's kingdom in the world through the preaching of the gospel, through the conversion of sinners, but there will be some who only appear converted for a time. For those who like to take notes, here is the the five points that will travel down. Some a little lengthier than others, just looking at this text and trying to apply it well to our lives. First, Philip preached the gospel. Second, the Samaritans hear and believe the gospel. Third, God affirmed the believing Samaritans, as we'll see, by the baptizing or infilling of the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, the repeated arc of the book of Acts, just taking note of the beauty of this repetition that we see. And then fifthly, considering this strange character of Simon, the magician, and what we might learn, especially with him being uh, an emphasis of this passage. Well, let's get straight to it with point number one, the preaching of the gospel by Philip, Philip preaching the gospel. Well, recall, as I've already reminded you, uh, that that commission that Christ gave his disciples, those who were his followers back at the beginning of the book of Acts in Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus commissions His disciples and he told them you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So wait in Jerusalem. I'm going to send my spirit to you. And when he comes to you, he will empower you to do the very thing I'm commissioning you or sending you out to do, which is you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The Holy Spirit did come Acts chapter two upon the believers Uh, that those who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Again, you can read about this in Acts chapter two, especially verses one to four. And those Christians who were baptized or infilled with the Holy Spirit, they immediately began doing the very thing Christ had commissioned them to do. So they they got the message. Wait until you receive the Holy Spirit, then be my witnesses. They received the Holy Spirit and immediately they began to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. Spirit empowered witnesses for Jesus. Jesus. Now here again, uh, we see in the book of Acts, the same kind of thing happening, but this time there's an added uh, sort of piece to this whole puzzle. And that's the persecution that began in Jerusalem. So when Stephen was facing the opposition that he was, uh, there were those who who rose against Stephen uh, to, to single him out as one particular target of persecution, but it was his persecution that precipitated greater, a great persecution, we're told in Acts chapter eight, upon the church, all of the members of the church in Jerusalem. And as we talked about last week, it does seem as though a a greater target of this persecution were those Hellenized Jews, uh, Jewish Christians, Uh, those who were Jewish by ethnic descent, Christian by belief, by practice, by following Jesus. But uh, culturally and linguistically, they were Hellenized or Greek. Uh, with their culture and their linguistics. So when the the Jewish folks who rejected Christ as Messiah there in Jerusalem began to persecute the Christians for following Jesus, uh, these were an especially vulnerable portion of the Christian group that was there in Jerusalem. It seems as though these were the ones that were mostly scattered about. And Philip uh, was, remember, one of those listed as uh, one of those men who was who was um, offered up by the congregation there in Jerusalem to be uh, one who would deacon or serve or minister among the congregation there in Jerusalem. And recall that both Stephen and Philip, these guys specifically mentioned, but that there were seven to- seven in total, uh, and, and all seven had names that were of uh, uh, Greek sounding names. So very likely all seven of those guys who were raised up as deacons there uh, in Jerusalem were Hellenized Jewish Christians. So Philip is going out, Under this persecution in Jerusalem, God's sending him out by way of persecution, and he does not forget his task. Why, though, does Luke focus in on Philip? It's very likely that uh, that more than just Philip, it's it's almost uh, assuredly more than just Philip is going out and, and preaching, spreading the word of the Lord Jesus Christ as they go. Why the focus on Philip? Well, it seems to me the focus on Philip is because of what we read in verse five. Philip went down to a city or the city of Samaria. So it's Philip's audience that is of particular interest to Luke and should be of particular interest to us. After Jerusalem, Samaria is the next target of Christ's expanding kingdom in the world. Remember Jesus' commission. You will be my disciples. You'll be my witnesses, excuse me. First in Jerusalem, then in all Judea and Samaria, Judea being the area around Jerusalem, Samaria just north. It's in all this space now that the gospel is expanding. And Luke is the end of the, the tip of the spear for that gospel expansion. Notice also in verse five that Philip, when he went, he proclaimed to them the Christ. You know, we've, we've talked about this a number of times already as we've been going through the book of Acts, that there is a, a heavy concentration of a heavy weight that's placed on this as the core message of the gospel that was shared by uh, the earliest Christians. They went about telling people that Jesus was, is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. Uh, They did not see themselves as creating something new. Rather, these Christians understood that what they were experiencing was God's fulfillment of promises that he'd been making for a very long time. And so when it tells us in verse five that he proclaimed to them, that is to the Samaritans, the Christ, it's telling us in shorthand the gospel. This is what this is what Philip was proclaiming to them. And, and uh, this is the core of what Christians are on about. This, this is what is not only hope for the Samaritans, but this is what is hope for us today, that there is a Christ. There is a Messiah. There is an anointed one that God's promises to make all things right after they were they were radically corrupted uh, with the fall of humanity because of sin, that God's promise to make things right has been made good on. That when God created everything good in the beginning, but man sinned against God and was, was pushed out of God's presence, not welcomed there any longer, that when God did that and he promised, please, uh, recognize that this promise is not uh, uh, overtly obvious until you begin to understand the unfolding of the storyline of scripture, but God promised nevertheless that there was coming a day when this would be made right again. And he puts this seed of the gospel right there at the very beginning in Genesis chapter three. And all throughout the Old Testament, there's the unfolding of greater detail and clarity and expansion really of what this promise is going to look like. And so the, the message of these early Christians is the message of the gospel. And that is that the Lord Jesus is indeed the one from God who came to make all things right. He's the one who by his his, his uh, life lived in the place of all those who would trust in him by his sacrificial death, or as Steve read to us a little while ago from the scriptures, that big word propitiation, his atoning sacrificial death, his death, his death in the place of those who would trust in him, that this is, is what God has planned all along to bring guilty sinners like me and you into right relationship with him. So just like the Samaritans, when Philip was preaching the gospel to them, we too want to cling to that same hope that there is a Christ, there is a Messiah. And so friends today, let us cling afresh. If we've already begun clinging to Christ, let's do that all the tighter this morning. If that's not something that you're regularly doing, that's not something that you understand even what that means. Well, let's understand that better before you leave today. Let's talk about that as the service dismisses. So Philip came and preached the gospel to these Samaritans. And then point number two is that we see in this passage, they they hear and believe the gospel. So the Samaritans, point number two, they hear and they believed. What happened when Philip preached? We see in verse six that many of the Samaritans paid attention to what Philip said. We're told that there were crowds of them. That gathered and they paid attention to what Philip said. The Samaritans also saw, verse 6, the signs that Philip did. Well, what were some of those signs? Let's look at them. In verse 7, we see that there were the signs of casting out of the unclean spirits. In verse 7 also, there was the healing of those who were paralyzed or lame. And also in verse 13, there was the performing of great miracles. So we don't know exactly what other miracles were there, but it seems that more than just these, even though these were already fantastically incredible. But uh, these these are characteristic. We want to notice that these are characteristic of what's happening at this particular transition moment of the unfolding of God's plan to redeem people by Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, for his sake, for his glory. Uh, these miraculous signs we see are validating or, or raising the credibility of, uh, not only of the, the preacher or, or the uh, the apostles who are speaking on the name, uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, because Philip, uh, understand, is is not uh, an apostle. Uh, he is a, a deacon in the church of Jerusalem, but he's been scattered about by way of persecution. And he goes preaching the gospel as he goes. Nevertheless, there are still these signs that are following him, too. Uh, so these are primarily done, as we see in the book of Acts. Primarily, it's the apostles who are performing these signs and wonders that are validating them in their apostolic office. But it's not just that. It's also sort of this giant arrow pointing to this time in human history when God is doing something big in the unfolding of his plan of redemption. Recall this is what he does when we meet the character Moses in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, when Moses shows up on the scene. It's not that Moses is a big deal. It's that God is going to do something huge in the unfolding of the storyline of his plan of redemption in Exodus. And so all around Moses' life and the life of Israel during this time, there are incredible signs and wonders, miracles, judgments of all kinds that are happening. It's as though God is pointing a big giant arrow to that time in human history saying, I'm doing something big. And what was it big that God did during that time? Well, it was the giving of his law. It was the revealing of his law. Who are his people to be in this world? How are they to be governed? How is God himself to be approached? In addition to him revealing his law, he's revealing his own name through this unfolding of the Exodus storyline. So it's big stuff that's happening here. It's big stuff that's happening uh, through those who are prophets in the Old Testament and Elijah and Elisha being the primary, you know, the prophets extraordinaire in the Old Testament. And there are massive uh, events that happen around their lives. These key moments though, in the unfolding of the storyline of the Bible and of human history in general, are really the only times with with maybe only a, a few exceptions here or there, These are the only times when there are these spectacular, miraculous events taking place. God is saying, I'm doing something big, pay very close attention. But outside of that, there are these long periods where God doesn't seem to do miraculous miraculous things hardly at all. In fact, there is a time between the closing of the Old Testament and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, where about 400 years go by, where God doesn't speak at all. The same thing took place before the coming of Moses to the people of Israel when they were slaves in Egypt. So it's important for us to recognize that these signs are not meant to necessarily be a a sign of the power or the authority of the people uh, who are talking, but rather the, the incredible power and authority of the message they bring, which is the message of the new covenant, the message of the Christ who has come and it is Jesus. It's also really important for us to recognize that these signs, these wonders, these miracles of healing, the casting out of evil spirits, that these are a foretaste of the age to come. These are signs that the curse that fell upon all creation in Genesis three, that that curse is being rolled back, that there's not going to be anyone who's paralyzed in the kingdom to come. There's not going to be any unclean spirits who are who are terrifying or tormenting anyone. There are going to be no no one who's lame uh, in the new kingdom. And Jesus, by his spirit, through his people in the world at this time, he is showing the whole world, look, his kingdom is here, but not yet fully here. Not everyone who's paralyzed is healed. Not everyone who's lame is healed. Not every unclean spirit has come out of everyone everywhere, but it's begun. It's been inaugurated. And so we can have great hope. Well, look, this is this is the biblical pattern that we've seen so far unfolding here in Acts chapter eight. And let's just take a moment to enjoy the progression of this thoroughly Baptist passage. So for anyone who's not particularly convictional Baptist this morning, I'm really sorry that we're in Acts chapter eight. But it is just my luck uh, today because I am convictionally Baptist. And thank the Lord. This passage lines up really well with my theology. Uh, Philip preaches the gospel. We see we see him doing that. Samaritan men and women believe the gospel. They believe what Philip preached and those who were converted were baptized. This is the progression. This was the progression in Acts chapter two. It's the progression again here. It is when there is detail given about who is baptized. It's always those who believed being baptized. Uh, This is a wonderful uh, opportunity for us to recognize that baptism is the way that New Testament Christians as it were, to to borrow from Bobby Jameson's language, they go public with their belief or faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way Christians announce to the world. It's how fellow Christians announce to the world that this person is one of us. It's a sort of stamping of the passport of a Christian to say, yes, this one is of the kingdom of Christ. Uh, that's what baptism is. And so that's why there's no difficulty with verse 16 when Luke tells us they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus well, that doesn't that doesn't uh, conflict at all with what Jesus commissions in Matthew chapter 28, because it's the idea is, is that they are associated with this one who is the Christ, who is the Messiah. Uh, so Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. So for Jesus to say that his his uh, commissioning of his disciples to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, and that those who were baptized or baptized into Jesus baptism or baptized in the name of Jesus. Well, that's the baptism that they're talking about. They're pointing to the one that Jesus commissioned. Which is baptism in the name of the triune God of which Jesus is the one and only Savior, uh, so there's no there's no conflict that is there. But uh, again, this follows the same biblical pattern that we've seen already in Acts chapter two. We're seeing it again here in Acts chapter eight, and uh, this again is is the the biblical pattern that we want to mimic in our own lives today. If you have more questions about that, want to talk through baptism later. Uh, That would be one of many subjects I'd be so happy to talk with you about after we're all done. Uh, But there is something that's odd about the order of something that does happen here in this passage. So I want to acknowledge that, of course, belief and baptism are are in their proper order here, uh, as, as is the case elsewhere in the Bible when that's explicit. But there is something that does seem possibly a little bit out of order. Or maybe this is a curious passage. What do we do with that reception of the Holy Spirit after... They were baptized. What do we do with that? And what's up with that? Well, I'm glad you asked. And that brings me to point number three. And that is that God himself affirmed the believing Samaritans. That's point number three. God himself affirmed the believing Samaritans. Let's look especially at verses 14 to 17. We see there in verses 14 to 17 that the apostles at Jerusalem. So recall the uh, most likely it was the Hellenized Jewish Christians who were scattered about. Uh, this is uh, one certainly of which uh, Philip is associated. He's, he's among that people group. But the apostles and probably many, a good many of the Hebraic Jewish Christians uh, stayed there in Jerusalem. Uh, the apostles, though, that are still there at Jerusalem, they hear that Samaria had received the word of God. And so they sent, so Peter and John go as sort of these apostolic uh, representatives, this envoy from the apostles, Peter and John, Verse 15, they come down and prayed for them. That is for the Samarian, Samaritans who had believed and, and been baptized. So those, who, those who were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who had received the word, verse 14. So we're thinking about our context here. Uh, Peter and John came to them and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they, they were those who were believers. They had been baptized, publicly associated with the Lord Jesus Christ as Christians, but the apostles come and specifically lay their hands on them and pray for them that they might also receive the Holy Spirit. And indeed, we're told in verse 17, they did. Now, Luke doesn't tell us exactly how this reception of the Holy Spirit was made manifest. I think we're pretty safe, though, to assume that some of the same things happened in this instance, as we already read about in Acts chapter two. Now, it seems as though there are some specific things that happen in Acts chapter two that were unique to that first uh, coming of the Holy Spirit upon the people of Christ in the world. This, this rushing wind, these, these tongues of fire, these are meant to conjure up in the, uh, in the mind of the reader uh, the events that happened at the top of Mount Sinai. Uh, so this is, I think, uh, I think we have warrant to understand that these were one-time uh, uh, activities, one-time experiences. But the speaking with other languages or other tongues, it seems very likely that's exactly what they would have done at this time in Acts chapter eight. Think about the way it's put in Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so Luke just tells us they received the Holy Spirit. He doesn't tell us how he knew that. But I think it's probably safe to say that there was some outside evidence that this took place. How else would he know? It's also interesting to note that Peter is going to use this very same argument in Acts chapter 11 about why the Gentiles, so not just Samaritans who were uh, mutt type Jews, they, they had other ethnicities in their lineage, lineage, not just Jewish. But Peter's going to argue this is why Gentiles should be welcomed into the people of the Lord Jesus Christ is because they too experienced the same infilling of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of the speaking in other tongues as we have. So again, it seems to me that that's a perfectly reasonable understanding. But the question that's really important is not so much what did it look like, but what does this mean? Why did God do that? Well, recall in Acts chapter two, if you're gonna hold your finger in Acts eight and flip back with me just a little to Acts two, look especially if you're turning there to verses thirty-eight and thirty-nine. Peter, after he preached the gospel, Uh, to those who were gathered around there on the day of Pentecost, his closing, in, in in the closing in his call to how to respond to this preaching, he says this in verses 38 and 39. Repent, you know, turn from your sin and be baptized, be associated with the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And Peter's promise to them, is that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you be one who is associated with the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world. You be one who, who becomes a citizen of Christ, of Christ's kingdom, and you also will receive the same spirit that these Christians have received before you. That's his promise there. Then he goes on and says, still in Acts chapter two, for this promise, the promise is for you and for your children, Descendants of Abraham and for all who are far off, all, everyone whom the Lord, our God calls to himself. So anyone who hears this good news that Peter's proclaimed in Acts chapter two, who responds with repentance and belief, which is signaled by baptism, they also may be recipients of the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that the Christians on the day of Pentecost received. So why then do the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit in this way? after they're being associated with the name of Christ. Well, it's to signal to the watching world and to, to the Samaritans, quite frankly, that the promise of the gospel is not just for those who are ethnically Jewish. Recall that this is a massive pivot point point, not a change in God's plan, but seemingly a pivot point in the observable plan of God unfolding. Up to this point in human history, to be a person of God, Uh, To be someone who is right before God or at least a covenant, uh, one who's in covenant, in good covenant with the the Lord God of the universe, you had to be one who's of the Mosaic covenant. This is the way God had revealed himself. This was the covenant that he had revealed uh, the the, the way that you interact with him. But now Jesus comes on the scene saying that he is the the bringer of a new covenant. And here are these folks saying that there is a new covenant, a, a way by which people can have right relationship with God. That's not through Mosaic covenant obedience, but rather by faith or belief or trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And these Samaritans are ones who are not perfectly or purely ethnically Jewish. So for them to be believers is one thing. But for them to be put on display as God's own affirming hand says, yes, indeed, these are participants in the new covenant with me. That is spectacular. And that is something worth celebrating over. That's something worth pointing out in a big, big way. And that's exactly what God does here. So the infilling of the Holy Spirit on on the part of the Samaritans is to affirm them. God divinely affirming them as participants in the new covenant right alongside those Jewish Christians before them. So there's a quick question I want to try to address again very briefly uh, before we pass on to to point number four. Uh, But that is, Uh, There might be some who are wondering here today, or maybe you have conviction already about uh, should we expect tongues today or some second experience of the Holy Spirit after we've been converted? There are certainly good Christian folks who think that the answer to that question is yes. Uh, My mom and dad are those who are part of a denomination who fully affirms the the, uh, second experience of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues and that every Christian should expect to see such things. I want to argue that we should not expect to see such things today, not because there's any one verse in the Bible that says that stuff has gone away, but rather by answering the question, what did it mean when it happened in the New Testament? What was the meaning of it? And do we still need that meaning today? Is that is that a way in which God is still uh, sort of displaying who is a beneficiary of the new covenant and who isn't? So recall that there were many unusual events, both in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, that we do not expect to see repeated. As I've already told you, big giant signs, a big arrows pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the Christ, his apostles as being those who are spokesmen for the new covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world. But let me just give you a few examples of those things that I think all of us, no matter where we stand on the should we see tongue or should we hear tongues today, we probably all would agree that we don't expect Jesus to come again and to live and to die and be resurrected. That was a one-time event. The Messiah came. He lived. He died. He conquered death. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. We expect when he returns, he's going to be doing something different than when he he came the first time. We also saw that there were apostles who were divinely set apart as the foundation of the early church. This is New Testament language, not Mark Mentor language the foundation of the early church. And you don't lay again a foundation. You lay it one time and then you build upon it. Uh, We we don't expect that there will be new books of the Bible that are written. Uh, We saw that there were, we we read that there are new, there are apostles that existed during the time of the formation of the early church. uh, There were those who spoke and wrote with the authority of Christ himself in the world. And we have their books as part of the canon or the rule or the standard of our written text. But we don't expect there to be more of that today. We saw this as something that did happen. Uh, God has revealed himself once and for all in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the folks who wrote of him, told about what happened there, explained it a bit afterwards as Christ empowered them, uh, empowered and inspired them to do. And now that's done. We don't expect that to continue on. We also saw many signs and miracles and wonders done by the hands of the apostles and those who traveled along with them. Uh, We saw even in our own passage this morning, those who were paralyzed, being healed, those who were being lame, uh, lame, being healed, those who had uh, unclean spirits, those spirits being cast out. Uh, There are none of us, I don't think, who expect anyone to go down to Longview Regional or Good Shepherd and clear out the hospital this morning. Why don't you expect that? If you expect tongues, then you should expect that as well. Uh, those are things that happened during this time to validate both the, the people and the message that was being proclaimed. And if tongues are something that you expect still to see today, I wonder why you don't expect these others. Now, the short, the short uh, answer to the question, I think, should we expect tongues again today or continuing today? I think the short answer is no, because what they did during the time of the foundation of the church was they showed us who is included in the new covenant people as the book of Acts unfolds. And now we know that not only Samaritans, but also uh, Gentiles, uh, those who are far off, those who are totally separated from the covenant of God have been welcomed in by the Lord Jesus Christ and validated by his spirit. Having said that, I don't want to say that we don't expect to see evidence of Holy Spirit in filling in the lives of believers today. We do expect to see evidence. We just don't expect it to be The kind of flashy, showy, one time evidence. What we expect to see is evidence that looks a bit more mundane, but is miraculous nonetheless. We're told in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, that the Holy Spirit washes and regenerates and renews sinners according to the mercy of God. We're told in Galatians chapter 5, that there is fruit or evidence of the infilling of the Holy Spirit what is that fruit? What is that evidence? It's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. As I said, these things don't appear immediately to be miraculous, but indeed they are. You get around someone who requires patience of you and you will see just how miraculous it is that you have patience. You get around someone who costs a lot for you to love them and you will see that it is only by God's grace that you are able to love. Self-control in the midst of temptations. Uh, Again, all of these are not flashy. These are not things that will sell books or get on the front page of any newspaper or website. Uh, But these certainly are evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives. We also see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that the Holy Spirit apportions to each and empowers individual members of a larger congregation, a larger church body to serve one another for the common good. So in our own individual lives, we see fruit evidence of the Holy Spirit's infilling or baptizing us, coming to indwell us and among the congregation. In what other setting is there the, is there the obvious evidence that there is self-sacrificial love among a group of people who might not have much else in common? The local church puts on display the miraculous work of God and the infilling of the Holy Spirit, when we lay down our preferences, lay down our own lives, lay down our own comforts, lay down our own luxuries for the sake, the benefit of fellow church members. Again, this stuff is mundane, but this stuff is miraculous. Before we get to this interesting character of Simon the Magician, let me just really quickly, and this will be a short point for you, uh, but point number four is the repeated arc of the book of Acts. I just want to encourage us all this morning to see this repeated rhythmic arc of the book of Acts that Christ commissioned his disciples to be his witnesses. Christians faithfully live as pilgrim ambassadors for Christ in the world. And then God expands Christ's kingdom in the world, which is made visible in the assemblies of his spirit filled people through preaching and evangelizing and conversions. And even the most heinous opposition the world could muster only served God's purposes in extending Christ's kingdom further. That's the repeated arc of the storyline of the book of Acts, which should be a tremendous encouragement to us this morning because brothers and sisters, those of us who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we share in the same commission that Jesus gave his first disciples. We are his witnesses in the world. And we ought to follow the good example of these witnesses that we're reading about. Those who've lived before us and live as faithful pilgrim ambassadors. This is one of the main things we talked about last week. This is our commission in the world. Let us brothers and sisters live as faithful pilgrim ambassadors. Just like these early Christians, we also should trust in God's plan to grow Christ's kingdom in the world through gospel proclamation and conversions. We brothers and sisters simply teach People, the gospel, as as uh, Max Stiles puts it in his little red book called evangelism. We teach people the gospel with the aim to persuade them to believe. And we call them then to repent and to trust and follow Jesus alongside other spirit filled Christians. This is our simple and straightforward task that we should continue just like these early Christians. And then, brothers and sisters, finally, we ought to trust In God's sovereign and wise plans, as well as his his unstoppable power to accomplish his will. Look that he did it in in spite of whatever the world might throw at these early Christians. He did it. This is the way he works. This is what he's called us to do. And we should trust him and aim to be faithful. Fifth and finally, we want to address uh, this interesting character. Uh, Fifth point being the strange character of Simon the Magician. What are we to think about Simon and how does he play into this unfolding storyline? Well, first, let's consider who was he? We read about um, back in Acts chapter eight. Now in verse eight, we see that there was much joy in the city because of Philip's preaching and the apostolic miracles, which came along this with this new covenant message. But then in verse nine, we see Luke tells us, but, but there was a man named Simon. A Simon in verse nine had previously practiced magic and amazed the people of Samaria. Uh, Simon had the attention of everyone from the least to the greatest. Verse ten, we're told. Uh, it is implied here in the passage, and I think validated by some uh, some of the early writings of Christians who came after, uh, immediately after the apostolic age. Uh, but it's implied in the passage that Simon claimed deity. Uh, read it with me in verse ten. Uh, the people were saying of Simon that this man is the power of God that is called great. This, is, this man is the power of God in the flesh, essentially. You know, early church pastors and theologians of the second and third centuries, they did charge this same Simon of the book of Acts with being the founder of a heretical sect of, of Gnosticism, which is this special knowledge a special relationship with God that only we have the secret key to. And if you'll just follow like we do, then you can have this key to. That's a really uh, crude and short version of it. But they were called the, the Simonians or Simonians. Uh, this is uh, recorded for you. You can do more investigation on it. The point is, is that Simon was at the very least someone who was distracting from the God who is quite possibly being someone who is entirely antagonistic to him. Very likely. The question, though, that we want to consider for just a moment is Did Simon become a Christian? Verse 13 tells us Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. So Simon professed faith in Christ. He went public with that profession of faith and was baptized. We're told in verse 13 that Simon kept seeing signs and great miracles performed, and he was amazed. Whatever was ultimately in Simon's heart, he was publicly living as a Christian at least for a time. So whether or not he was a Christian, I'm not sure is as important of a, of a question as he at least was professing to be one and appeared to be one by all involved, it seems. But there is a confrontation that happens. And the apostles confront Simon. In verse 14, beginning there, we see that Peter and John, they came down, they prayed for the Samaritan believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit, and they did. But Simon doesn't seem to be included with them. He's singled out in verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. It seems to me it's not it's not explicitly stated here, but it does seem to me that the way Luke is telling us the story is Simon was an observer to the infilling of the Holy Spirit on the part of the believing Samaritans. And he sees this as a spectacular opportunity to continue in the same vein of work that he had been in before. I think we have warrant for that by way of implication, but it's certainly the way Peter talks. Look at it with me in verse 20. Peter rebuked Simon immediately, and he even speaks a word of judgment against him. Verse 20, Peter says, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Uh, This is not, you can't buy God, you can't bribe him, there's nothing that you can do to offer him everything in all of creation he owns already. We can give him nothing. As a matter of fact, to do so is an incredible offense. But then look at verse 21. Peter said, you, speaking to Simon, have neither part nor lot in this matter. The word there is word instead of matter. The original word is is word. And so the translators are doing their best to try to tell us what in the world they think this means here. But think about it like this. If Peter is saying you have neither part nor lot in this matter, what matter is he talking about? The dispensation of the Holy Spirit? The reception of the Holy Spirit, maybe both. I think word, though, gives us an indication all the more clearly of what Peter is saying here, because he's telling him, you have no part and no lot in this word. What's the word that's been proclaimed again and again all throughout the book of Acts? What's the word of the gospel? It's the promises of the gospel, including the reception of the Holy Spirit and the handing on, handing down of the Holy Spirit. So Peter tells him, you you're cut off. You do not have part or lot in this whole thing. In fact, your heart is not right before God. Peter clarifies. Verse 22, what's the solution? Peter says, repent. Don't continue on the path that you're on. Repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if it be possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. In other words, that if it at all be possible that God would change your heart because your heart is wrong. Then in verse 23, Peter solidifies His judgment and he says i see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity peter uses fancy bible and church language to say you are still in the bondage of your sin you have no hope before you but uh, the expectation of the judgment of god that's peter's word of judgment against simon well friends i think this reminds us that not all who profess to be Christians are truly Christian and that some actions or misplaced beliefs are signals that a person may be a false convert. Remember the different kinds of soil that Jesus talked about during his earthly ministry. He gave a parable of the sower, which is really not a parable about the sower, but a parable about the different soils. Matthew chapter 13 is one of the places where that shows up. The sower goes out, spreading the gospel, throwing seed, calling sinners to repent and believe. But Jesus explains that some sinners barely hear the gospel at all because they're distracted by the things of the world and by the evil one who is at work in this world. And so distractions or demonic efforts, uh, these things uh, take away the seed before it can settle. This is Matthew again, Matthew, chapter 13, verses four and 19. Jesus explaining his own parable. Also in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus explains that some sinners hear the gospel and respond positively right away, but these people often have no depth and they do not endure when things become difficult, when it becomes tough to follow Jesus, when they realize, oh, you mean that I have to give that up? Oh, you mean that I can't sin like that anymore? Some sinners... Hear the word of the gospel, but the cares of the world and the deceptive promises of sin choke out any real life or fruit. Oh, but if I follow Jesus, I can't I can't have this thing over here. What about the American dream that I was chasing after? Is that compatible with the gospel? And if not, what gives? And finally, the fourth type of soil Jesus describes as those sinners who hear the word and understand it and they bear fruit in keeping with repentance and faith. The fruit varies from soil to soil, but they all bear fruit. It's important for us to remember that only one of these soil types is one that's a true Christian. There are three bad examples, three examples of how not to receive the word, not to receive the gospel. One example of a good reception of the gospel. I'm not sure exactly which category Simon fits into Maybe the third kind of gospel here where the cares of the world choke out the seed of the gospel, where he still wanted to be the magician, the great one, but following Jesus meant submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ and seeing that only he can give the good gifts that he's promised. Calvin said it like this, talking about Simon. He said, when Simon was convicted, that is when the gospel was first proclaimed to him, he gave Christ his hand in earnest, reaching out to Jesus to save him. Like as many yield under the gospel, lest they strive against God. But in the mean season, in the meantime, they continue like Simon, like to themselves. They keep living on as they truly are. Whereas the denial of ourselves ought to follow true faith, rejecting who we once were. Simon didn't do that. He wanted to still be the magician. And Calvin goes on, this is to mix Christ with Satan. When doctrine pierceth not unto the hidden affections of the heart, that is when when the truths of the gospel don't get down into the very core of our own desires and affections, but instead the inward uncleanness lieth hidden there. That is that we, our sin and uncleanness, our corruption, it still lays hidden but only becomes manifest in certain circumstances. So then I think this this last point that we're considering, the strange character of Simon, I think it should sober us as professing believers. It should motivate us as evangelists, and it should codify us as a church. Let me briefly explain. It should sober us as professing believers because we want to recognize that there is such a thing as a false convert. And we never want to take for granted, oh, that couldn't be me possibly. We want to be sobered and recognize that we are prone to deceive ourselves. And that's why we so desperately need other Christians involved in our lives, helping us to both see our good fruit and evidence of true conversion and helping us to point out those areas where we still aren't exactly following Jesus as we should and to call us to repentance. We must be believing the true gospel we must be clinging to the true Christ and we must have all of our worldly desires and ambitions subdued under the lordship of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, may we desire to have this. And may we pursue it diligently. As I said, those second, this should motivate us as evangelists for our friends and our family members, our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates who say that they're Christians but have no evidence of such a thing. Jesus said, that we would produce varying levels of fruit, varying amounts of fruit, varying kinds of fruit in our lives, but that all those who love and trust and follow the Lord Jesus would produce fruit. So, brothers and sisters, might it be that your friend or your family member who professes faith in, in the Lord Jesus, but who is not exhibiting fruit, giving evidence of true conversion, might it be that it's not a lack of discipleship, but rather a lack of true spiritual conversion? Let's stop imagining that what we just need to do is shake our loved ones more so that they'll follow Jesus better. Rather, might we call them out and say, you know, brother, sister, friend, I am fearful that you might not be a Christian. Let's think about that. Let's talk about that. Lastly, this should codify us or arrange us or order us as a church such that we, all of us as church members, understand that because there is such a thing as a false convert, who appears to be a Christian for a time, we should take our relationship with Christ and how we're related to one another because of that relationship to Christ, we should take that really seriously. We should take that seriously among this church family. We should be constantly encouraging one another to produce fruit, coming alongside each other, helping us all follow Jesus together, calling out our sin, calling each other to repentance and aiming to follow Christ together. May God first help us to be those who cling to the Lord Jesus and faithfully be his witnesses in this world. And secondly, may God help us to take seriously this real example and call uh, to take seriously our walk with the Lord Jesus, both as individuals and as a church family today. Would you bow with me and let's pray. We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.